caffeine pills because I'm a crackhead, you know, just like uh, Jesse in Saved by the Bell, for those of you who haven't seen that episode, she gets addicted to caffeine pills. That's me in real life. <laughs> so um, I, ha- I had uh, run out of them a few days ago, and man, it was a pain in the ass. I had to fucking actually get coffee, and I don't know, that's like an, a headache. People People were making fun of me and saying like, what do you mean? Do you, don't you like drinking coffee? And it's like, well, yeah, but it's a pain in the ass. You gotta fucking make it, and it takes a while, and then you gotta sip it. It's like a chore, because I actually am am drinking it for the effects. You know, I'm not I'm I'm not a fan of like the ritual aspect of it. I know a lot of people like the ritual aspect of it, where you know they they go through the motions and they make the coffee and they sit there and they sip it as they have a cookie or two and they read the paper or whatever if anybody even reads papers anymore um for me it was just okay i need to feel more awake <laughs> so to actually have to go through the process of fucking making it that was a pain in the ass um so anyway that's a long way of me saying i just got my caffeine pills back popped a few of those bad boys and bitch, I'm ready to go. This show is turbocharged by caffeine pills. Um, so we're going to talk about the State of the Union. I, I have some little clipperoonies for you of Donald Trump saying stuff. I'm going to break down some of the most important parts. Um, <clears throat> that's going to be, I have maybe five or six of those. And then later on in the show, when we finally get past uh, the breakdown of the State of the Union, um, Tulsi Gabbard goes on Morning Joe, and they really, really fucking embarrassed themselves. I mean, I, I felt horrible for Tulsi watching that clip because, I mean, she's getting like, 
you'll see. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to do it in advance here, but the the framing of the questions that they're giving her, all of the questions about Assad and Syria, it's unbelievable. It's like the military-industrial complex wrote down everything and scripted it and said said to the Morning Joe host, this is how you're going to uh, you know, grill her. Then later on in the show, Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty talks health care policy on Fox News, and it's one of the funniest fucking clips I've ever seen in my life. And uh, Cory Booker colossally fails uh, defending Medicare for All because, he honestly, it's a non-defense that he gives Medicare for All. He's, like, pushed on it a little bit by um, mainstream media hosts, and the mainstream media hosts end up walking all over him, and he face plants and starts crying and backs off and suddenly changes his tune to, oh, did I say Medicare for All? What I meant was increased access, bro. That's all I wanted, more access, bro. All right, so um, without further ado, <clears throat> let's get started. And I got, like I said, I got a bunch of Trump clips from the State of the Union. Here we go, baby. So Trump had his State of the Union the other night. Um, I'm going to break down some of what he said. Here he is bragging about stuff that he shouldn't be bragging about. We virtually ended the estate tax or death tax, as it is often called, on small businesses, for ranches, and also for family farms. eliminated the very unpopular Obamacare individual mandate penalty. And you give critically ill patients access to life-saving cures. We passed, very importantly, right to try. administration has cut more regulations in a short period of time than any other administration during its entire tenure. Oh boy, so let's break this down. You know, oftentimes I call Donald Trump the Fox News president and others have uh, called him the same thing. And um, that is the truest thing anybody has ever said, ever, because he's an actual Kool-Aid drinker. So, in other words, he has totally, utterly, completely fallen for the worldview that's presented on that network. And on that network, it is just doctrinaire right-wing politics with no deviation whatsoever. And that's how you get to a point where he brags about this stuff that it's in his own bubble that he's bragging. Most Americans are going to hear that and go, that's not necessarily a good thing. So I'm going to walk you through it in a second. But another example of this is when they did the, um, when they did the GOP tax bill, Donald Trump apparently insisted behind the scenes that, 
you call it the Tax Cut Act. He wanted the words tax cut in the bill. Why? Because, again, he's so thoroughly drunk the Kool-Aid of far-right ideology that he thinks, how could anybody disagree with tax cuts? How could anybody disagree with that? When, uh, of course, the reality is your branding is supposed to be, um, you know, highfalutin in a way where you try to, like, hook the opposition to it and try to make people think it's kind of um, above argument. It's like they did with the Patriot Act, for example. Terrible legislation that takes away you know, your protection from unreasonable search and seizure, an insane uh, policy, but they called it the Patriot Act, so they could turn around and go, are you unpatriotic? Is that why you oppose this? So the original idea was for the tax cut bill called the Tax Reform Act. Now I think they did, I don't know the exact name, but I know tax cut is in there, tax reform and tax cut act, I don't know, something like that. Um, But tax cut is in there, and he insisted you put tax cut in there when other you know, branding experts were like, why would you do that? Stop. No, you're supposed to try to hook in the opposition and make it sound like you can't criticize it, and this isn't just a right-wing thing. But, but again, so drunk on Fox News, he thinks, who could disagree? Who could disagree with tax cuts? Um, well, especially the way they were crafted, a lot of people can, because 83% of the benefits went to the top 1% over a, a decade. So that's just one example. Now, let me walk you through it here and how embarrassing it is that he's bragging about many of these things. So first, he leads with the estate tax cut. First of all, dipshit, you're supposed to only say the death tax part. Like, so that's the right-wing rebranding. The actual name of that tax is the estate tax. Why do they call it the estate tax? Because it only hits people with estates. The only people who feel that tax have estates. So it's when like a uber-wealthy multi-millionaire person passes away um, and they want to pass their wealth down to younger generations, um, that's when it kicks in. You have to, the line was, I think, $7.5 million, and then now uh, the GOP tax bill made it so it's $11 million. So in other words, if you, make, if you have $10 million, um, you're not going to get hit by the estate tax. If your family has $5 million, you're not getting hit by it. $1 million, you're not getting hit by it. It's only for, like, the mega wealthy. In fact, it only applies to, I think it's the top 0.02%. So, I mean, this does not affect regular people. But what Republicans did is they changed the branding of it, and they said, don't call it the estate tax, because then people are going to support that tax. So you have to reframe it, call it the death tax, so that you make average people think, oh, shit, I'm going to die one day. I don't want the government taking my money, the, you know, 27 grand that I'm leaving my kids. So, shit, I'm against the death tax. But it was a trick. It was a marketing trick. Now, Trump, again, is so deep in that right-wing bubble that sometimes he lets the truth slip. Is just, I, I, uh, I massively cut the estate tax. That's what I did, the estate tax. And then he quickly changes and says, oh, the death tax. And then he lies and says, um, to help uh, small businesses and family farms. I got news for you. It ain't small businesses that are, um, you know, feeling the benefits of that. It's only the ultra wealthy. So, again, a lot of this stuff is framed terribly, and then it's also just lies because they try to make you think that this tax cut helps regular people when it just doesn't at all. Then he uh, talks about the individual mandate. And he says, I got rid of the Obamacare, massively unpopular Obamacare individual mandate. 
Now, to be fair, he's actually right that of all of the policies in the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, that's the one policy that uh, wasn't popular. People did not like the idea of the individual mandate where you're basically forced by law to go buy on the private for-profit health insurance market. So he's right that that's unpopular. However, the rest of the law, Obamacare, when you go provision by provision in the law, massively popular. So, for example, under Obamacare, there's the Medicaid expansion, massively popular. Um, under Obamacare, there's rules as to how much money that goes into a for-profit health insurance company goes to overhead costs versus how much actually goes to care. The old ratio used to be like 50-50 in some cases or 60-40. Obamacare says 80% of the money taken in by these health insurance companies has to go towards actual health care. That massively popular provision, letting kids stay under their parents' roles until they're 26, massively uh, popular provision. Uh, protections for pre-existing conditions, massively popular provision. Now, he is talking about how he gutted Obamacare, and they did repeal the individual mandate as part of the, the tax bill. He also signed multiple executive orders that basically shiv Obamacare, like, for example, gutting the advertising aspect of the bill so fewer people uh, know about it and use the exchanges and use Obamacare. Well, guess what? As a direct result of his health care policies, Donald Trump's health care policies, Seven million people lost health care in his time in office. They don't have health insurance anymore. They did, now they don't. Seven million more people. So if you, you would think that you know, these guys would be smart enough to know, hey, maybe I'll sidestep an issue where, uh, on the broader issue, I look like a jackass. But no, he doesn't sidestep the issue. He brings up Obamacare and acts like he did something massively popular. When again, in reality, all of his actions uh, on Obamacare have been a giant net negative for the country. And by the way, he didn't even mention that his fucking replacement for Obamacare, Trump Care, that had an approval rating, uh, depending on which poll you looked at, but it was anywhere from 13% to 21%. So his, as bad as Obamacare was, because it was a, a, a shitty, mild reform that copied a right-wing idea from the Heritage Foundation, Trump's was even worse and polled way worse. So health care is not something you should be bragging about. You should be embarrassed over it. Um, now, then he goes on. This one's interesting. He brings up right to try. This is, a, this is a little bit of a conundrum. This is a paradox, if you ask me. So the right to try thing is the idea that when you're on death's doorstep and, and you want to try a Hail Mary uh, attempt to cure something, that now you have the right to try it, and it doesn't have to be FDA approved. It doesn't have to have the, you know, pass all these regulations and these, stri the str these stringent tests. And the idea is, hey, listen, when you're about to die, you'll try fucking anything. So, by all means, go ahead. Now, I understand supporting that in theory. Like, I, the idea of that, I get. Because if I'm on death's door and some, some doctor comes out of nowhere, some researcher comes out of nowhere and says, hey, listen, we got this thing we're working on. It's only in the experimental phase. No guarantee it's going to work. In fact, it's probably not going to work. But if you want to try it, please, by all means, go right ahead. I get that. I get that you shouldn't have somebody step in between you and your doctor and say, no, we're not going to let you try that. However... Just be under no illusions about why this is something that passed and why you got Republican support for it, but also plenty of corporate Democratic support for it. The reason is, let's face it, face it health insurance, uh, or excuse me, pharmaceutical company profit. Because that is a massively exploitable situation where big pharma wants to be able to exploit it. When somebody's on death's doorstep and they're willing to try anything, 
if you're a pharmaceutical company, you can fucking sell snake oil and get away with it and make a massive profit in the process. So really, it's a way to sidestep uh, the regulatory process and pitch people unproven stuff. And it, honestly, it is big pharma taking advantage of people who are about to die for profit. So that's the dynamic of what's going to end up happening with Right to Try. It's going to be a lot of snake oil pitched to desperate people, and not, a lot of this stuff, probably almost maybe all of it, is not going to work to save somebody's life. Um, but again, it's a tough question because in principle it makes sense to say, hey, as a last-ditch effort, I'll try anything. you know. But I just want everybody to understand that the most cynical interpretation of what's going on here is the correct one which is the entire Republican Party is bought by Big Pharma. Half the Democratic Party is bought by Big Pharma. The corporate Democrats and the corrupt Republicans got together and they said, okay, let's pass this right to try bill and pretend like we care about sick and dying people. But in reality, it has more to do with uh, Big Pharma's profits. So just be under no illusions about why they're actually in favor of this. I know they're trying to spin it like they're heroes. They're not. Of course they're not. Um, and then finally, he bragged about deregulation. Listen, you know, we should actually be thanking them for this because they're wearing it on their sleeve. And when the inevitable next crash happens, they now have no wiggle room. So it was tax cuts for the rich and massive deregulation that led to the Great Depression, 1929 stock market crash and the Great Depression, um, the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. And, you know, for example, getting rid of Glass-Steagall, there was a wall of separation between commercial banking and investment banking. But once you got rid of that wall of separation, you now had banks taking your depositor money. Regular person works a regular job, deposits your money in the bank, and all of a sudden they're doing all these crazy casino capitalist bets. And as any gambler knows, you do high-risk bets long enough, and it's going to go bust at some point. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. And deregulation doesn't turn it over to the smartest guys in the room on Wall Street. It turns it over to the greediest guys in the room. And when they have no rules, have no refs looking over their shoulder to make sure they're on the up and up, what happens? They end up doing uh, terrible things. And, you know, the economy suffers. So understand that deregulation leads to boom-bust cycles. And now you have Donald Trump bragging about financial deregulation. And then when the next crash comes, he has no fucking wiggle room. Every expert's going to say, hey, jackass, you were bragging about your deregulation. Of course, of course the next crash is your fault. You fucking put it into overdrive, dipshit. So for them, again, this all goes back to Donald Trump is the Fox News president, and he's so deep in that bubble. Like, all he's heard is, like, Stuart Varney and um, Sean Hannity ever mention issues on regulation, and they just feed him a steady diet of regulation bad. So he really believes that everybody agrees, regulation bad, and so he brags about deregulation, and that when, now when the shit hits the fan, he's got no outs. I mean, he's going to try to blame the Fed, we know that for sure, and he's also going to try to blame Obama, um, but just understand that a lot of his actions are speeding up the next crash. So, oh shit, <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair. So just understand that this is a... I mean, he's putting on a clinic here in how, uh, in bragging about things you shouldn't brag about, and it's going to come back to bite him in the ass. Okay. Next.
So President Trump brought back his old playbook of fake populism at the State of the Union. Take a look. Another historic trade blunder was the catastrophe known as NAFTA. I have met the men and women of Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, New Hampshire, and many other states whose dreams were shattered by the signing of NAFTA. For years, politicians promised them they would renegotiate for a better deal. But no one ever tried until now. Our new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, the USMCA, will replace NAFTA and deliver for American workers like they haven't had delivered to for a long time. I hope you can pass the USMCA into law so that we can bring back our manufacturing jobs in even greater numbers expand American agriculture, protect intellectual property, and ensure that more cars are proudly stamped with our four beautiful words, made in the USA. to pass the United States Reciprocal Trade Act so that if another country places an unfair tariff on an American product, we can charge them the exact same tariff on the exact same product that they sell to us. should be able to unite for a great rebuilding of America's crumbling infrastructure. I know that Congress is eager to pass an infrastructure bill. And I am eager to work with you on legislation to deliver new and important infrastructure investment, including investments in the cutting-edge industries of the future. This is not an option. This is a necessity. The next major priority for me and for all of us should be to lower the cost of health care and prescription drugs, and to protect patients with pre-existing conditions. Okay, so first to that last point, um, the pre-existing conditions point, his administration is backing a lawsuit that takes away protections for pre-existing conditions. See, this is the kind of classic Trump doublespeak that allows him to keep fooling the 30% of the country that will never abandon him and, you know, gets the rest of, of people in the country pissed off at him because they know it's not true. 
His administration is backing a lawsuit that gets rid of the protections for pre-existing conditions. So for him to go out there and pretend like he's in favor of it, no, he's just trying to save his ass politically because he knows that that's an issue where you can't take the other side. I mean, the polling is so overwhelming on that issue that they're not even daring to cross that line. So it's over 90% of Americans that say we should protect pre-existing conditions. And so now he's out there like, me? What? The Republicans? What? No, no, we talk, we're totally for, for protecting people with pre-existing conditions, right? So just understand what's really going on behind the scenes as he pretends like, um, you know, he's on the, the right side. If he was on the proper side and he meant it, he would not back that lawsuit. Um, then he goes on to talk about, oh, the lower cost of health care. We need a lower, lower cost health care and we need um, cheaper prescription drugs. Hey, dude, listen, Bernie Sanders has been proposing an amendment for years now which allows us to do drug reimportation from Canada. And that basically cuts the price almost in half and makes our prescription drugs so much cheaper uh, for everybody to afford. And this is an idea, it's not, a, it's not a radical idea, it's an idea that people have known about for a long time, allowing Medicare to negotiate for cheaper drug prices with the pharmaceutical companies is another idea that all these presidents have been saying they support, but then when push comes to shove, they allow the pharmaceutical companies to keep uh, screwing people over. So those are two ideas right there that you can back right now that would get cheaper drugs. But he's not doing it. Why? Well, listen, we, we told the story. He had one meeting with big pharma lobbyists, and he immediately changed his position. He said, oh, uh, no, we will not be allowing Medicare to negotiate for cheaper drug prices because Medicare is perhaps even more unfair than the pharma companies. He, he was doing the populist rhetoric and saying we need cheaper drugs, and he had one meeting with pharma lobbyists, and he totally flipped. He could have said, I back Bernie Sanders' amendment. He didn't say it. By the way, he also put uh, Alex Azar as the head of Health and Human Services. You know who Alex Azar is? A former executive of Eli Lilly who price gouged when he was at Eli Lilly. So the guy he put in charge of bringing us cheaper drug prices, he has literally price gouged on drug prices. And then also, if you want cheaper uh, health care, Medicare for All is the way to do that, just so you know. Every other developed country has one version or another of single payer, and they pay about half what the U.S. pays, and they cover everybody. So we know how to do it. It's just a matter of you actually wanting to do it, but you don't want to do it. He, in fact, Trump wrote an op-ed not that long ago, slamming Medicare for All, even though he, before he became president, there were, I think, six different occasions where he said he supports a single-payer system, a system like Canada, a system like Scotland, he said. He told a story about his buddy who went to Scotland, he got hurt, he went to the doctor, he left, and there was no bill. So he totally flipped on that, and here he's just saying he wants cheaper drugs and cheaper health care and, and um, lower cost of health care, and he does, he's not delivering. He could. He could support very specific policies, but he doesn't do it. Then on the crumbling infrastructure point, listen, we've seen... He only proposed one idea on this, and that idea was basically a giant privatization scheme for our infrastructure. So in other words, uh, and a lot of this because Gary Cohn was behind the scenes. Gary Cohn took a massive exit bonus from Goldman Sachs and then m millions and millions of dollars, and then he was the one pitching, hey, why don't we privatize a lot of our infrastructure and hand it over to Goldman Sachs? 
So his one idea that he had proposed was privatize large swaths of our infrastructure, turn it over to Goldman Sachs, and then they'll uh, upgrade it. So the idea that he's really for uh, an awesome Green New Deal or New New Deal or really rebuilding our infrastructure in a way that makes sense, he's just not. He's for privatization schemes. Um, now, then on the tariff idea, you know, I actually like that idea. However, just understand that Donald Trump, he always, like, he loves to give protectionist rhetoric and he loves to do pseudo-populism, but, like, here, let me give you an example of how we know he's not the real deal on this stuff. Donald Trump, if he wanted to, could have signed an executive order on day one as president. The executive order would say, made in America means actually made in America. So, in other words, previous administrations have said, oh, for the federal government, they only are able to buy American goods. So, for example, let's see, you see some federal um, law enforcement, okay? They're usually what? Driving like a Tahoe. Why? It's an American car, American-made car. So, you know, if we're the federal government, we only give business to, you know, businesses from America. And that makes perfect sense. Why should our tax dollars go towards, you know, buying goods that were made elsewhere and not, you know, uh, growing the economy here and helping our, our working people here? Well, made in America, there, there are provisions in that which basically say made in America includes America, but also all of our top allies. So in other words, if something's made in Israel, it's considered made in America. If something's made in Saudi Arabia, it's considered being made in America. I don't know how many things are made in Saudi Arabia, but you get the point. Uh, things can be made overseas, but as long as there are allies, we consider it made in America. So in other words, it's not made in America. So Trump could have signed an executive order on day one. In fact, the drafts already existed. Um, I remember reading the article on this and going, holy shit, what an awesome and uh, simple, easy concept to just sign this executive order and immediately help grow our economy and help our working people. He didn't sign that executive order. He didn't sign it. Instead, he did a symbolic Made in America week, which is nothing but symbolism. It's not actual concrete policy. If I was president on day one, I would sign that. Made in America means actually made in America. Boom, boom, boom. We're done here. And then, you know, then you go out and you brag about it because who doesn't agree with that from America? So um, even though sometimes he talks a good game on trade, the reality is he doesn't uh, walk the walk. He just talks the talk. Now, then we get to his uh, slamming of NAFTA. See, this is important, guys, because I just need everybody to understand his fake populism is not going to go away. Even though he has not at all been a populist president, his fake populism is not going to go away. So... This gets to people underestimating him, Democrats underestimating him, because there is this conventional wisdom emerging on the left, particularly in, in elite D.C. circles, that, oh, and he's obviously going to lose, and he's completely beatable, so anybody will do. Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Mike Bloomberg, you name it, they'll beat him. Easy. And listen, that's not true. I think that any half-decent Democrat will beat him because the polls do show that Trump is struggling like a motherfucker right now. We just covered a story the other day. Abysmal poll numbers. Abysmal poll numbers. But understand, if it's not like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Tulsi Gabbard, you're rolling the dice. Because here's what I know for sure. Donald Trump is going to make his case and make it as aggressively as popular. And he might lie endlessly. He might mislead endlessly. But just understand, 
he's going to make his case in a way that's going to convince all of his base is not going to abandon him. And how many independents is he going to chip away at? You know, how many people in the Rust Belt is he going to chip away at? Because if he keeps doing this fake populism, the fake populism will beat a totally non-populist Democrat, a totally elitist Democrat. And I don't think, you know, the usual suspects of the corporate Democrats have any idea how to run a campaign. And I think that's already been proven. Look at some of their launches. Look at Kamala Harris's launch. Unity, democracy, freedom. These aren't just words. Yeah, they are. They are just words. What do you mean? That's exactly what those are. What policies are you tying them to? Kamala Harris and Cory Booker got a slight pushback, just a little pushback on, on Medicare for All. Immediately walked back their support for Medicare for All. Immediately. That ain't going to fly. You think a guy like Beto O'Rourke, who apologized for calling Ted Cruz Lion Ted, you think that guy's going to be strong enough to debate Trump as Trump's going to fucking smash his skull into the pavement and then do fake populism all day long as Beto O'Rourke tries to say, I saw Hamilton last week and it was a wonderful musical. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. So the fake populism isn't dead and you need to beware because don't underestimate him again and they're already doing it. Even though his poll numbers are abysmal, granted, but if you run a corporate Democrat against him, it's going to be fucking, it can be, he can, he can win. Because, by the way, they don't, you think the corporate Democrats know everything I'm breaking down for you right now? Here's another fact. Uh, 93,000 jobs have been outsourced under uh, Trump's first year in office. So, Mr. I'm running on stopping outsourcing, 93,000 jobs were outsourced. That was worse than Obama. Obama had 87,000 jobs outsourced. You think any corporate Democrat can tell you that fact? Of course they can't. Of course they can't. Because what do they run on? Um, This president is bad. And he doesn't represent America well. And Russia controls this administration. That's what they run on. In other words, fucking nonsense. That's what they run on. So if you can't make a coherent case against them and stick to policy, you can lose. So, and the final point is this. As he's like still railing against NAFTA, which is wonderful politics, what he's not telling you is he did NAFTA 2.0, which is almost exactly the same as NAFTA. In fact, some of the provisions are even worse. Some of the provisions are just giveaways, like he spoke about um, intellectual property there and patents. Yeah, he did a, what he's not telling you is he did a massive giveaway to Big Pharma in NAFTA 2.0. A lot of provisions of TPP were slipped into NAFTA, into the new NAFTA. So just understand, he's railing against NAFTA, but he did NAFTA 2.0. You need the Democrats to be able to make a case against NAFTA 2.0 and say, I'm to the left. I'm actually left on policy, and I'm going to fight for uh, working class people. Instead, what I fear is they might go after Trump and say, Trump pulled out of NAFTA. We shouldn't have pulled out of NAFTA. Oh, why would you do that? In other words, I'm afraid they're going to hand him political victories because his fake populism, instead of saying, hey, Trump is a fake populist, what they're going to say is, he's a real populist and populism is bad. That sums up my fear on this stuff. Is that instead of the Democratic candidate saying, Trump's a fake populist, I'm the real populist. What I'm afraid they'll say is, he is a populist and populism is bad. And that ain't going to work. Because what's the opposite of populism? Elitism. 
So I just I'm scared to death because even though his poll numbers are abysmal, I think the Democrats can blow it. And this little clip, even though I just broke it down for you and told you the facts and told you how he's not fighting for the working class and all that stuff, that's not the line I think most of the Democratic candidates would take against him. Because I don't think they know these things I just told you about 93,000 jobs outsourced and the privatization scheme of the infrastructure. I think that they, they'll just say, no, he is a populist, but populism is bad, so vote for me. Oh, God damn it. We'll see what happens, but the fake populism isn't going anywhere, and the Democrats need to know that. Okay. Next. Venezuela. Let's see what Trump said about Venezuela in the speech. So President Trump got some bipartisan cheers when he brought up Venezuela in his State of the Union address. Take a look. Two weeks ago, the United States officially recognized the legitimate government of Venezuela and its new president, Juan Guaido. We stand with the Venezuelan people in their noble quest for freedom, and we condemn the brutality of the Maduro regime whose socialist policies have turned that nation from being the wealthiest in South America into a state of abject poverty and despair. Here in the United States, we are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free and we will stay free. I hope you were paying attention to which Democrats were cheering there because that's a that's a giant sign that they're not your friend. Now let me be clear about something. What's happening is um, there are some sly, misleading tricks that are occurring there. Of course, most importantly, the idea that you can uh, accurately sum up the movement in what's happening in the U.S. right now as um, socialist, full stop. That's just not true. If you look at the politics of uh, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Justice Democrats, um, what you have here, 
by and large, is a giant social democratic movement. So what that means is you'd be hard-pressed to find comments on the record of any of these people leading this movement that say, point-blank period, I have a post-capitalist philosophy and I want to completely democratize the workplace in every workplace in this country. You're not going to find that. You want to know why? Because nobody said that. Now, there are elements of DSA, people within DSA, who have that belief. But even if you talk with those people and you have extended conversations with them, they'll tell you up front, okay, yeah, maybe I get that we're nowhere near that uh, in America, so do I prefer social democracy to uh, insane corporatism and kleptocracy and oligarchy and capitalism? Yes, I do. So it's just he's not accurately stating what this left, populist left movement is. Now, with that misstatement, it allows him to look like, oh, I'm the person who's standing in between the American people and this terrible ideology. But in reality, no. He's standing in between the American people and the policies that they overwhelmingly prefer. So what is this movement based on? This movement is fighting for Medicare for all. 70% of Americans want Medicare for all. Free college, 58% of Americans uh, want free college. And the wars, only 17% of Americans still want to be in Afghanistan. Um, legalizing marijuana, 62% of Americans want to legalize marijuana. Raise the, the minimum wage, 80% of Americans want to raise the minimum wage. I can go on and on all day. You know, uh, raising taxes on the top 1%, people who make over $10 million a year, a 70% top marginal tax rate for every dollar above that $10 million in income per year. 59% of Americans support that. Even a majority of Republicans support that. So, and actually it depends. Some polls say 70% of Americans support that top uh, 70% marginal tax rate. So in other words, this movement that Trump is calling socialism is not socialism full stop. It's social democracy, and it's overwhelmingly popular. And Nancy Pelosi and half the Democrats are cheering, America will never be a socialist nation. <laughs> Make no mistake about it. Nancy Pelosi and the corporate Democrats, they are putting their middle finger up to social democracy there. That's exactly what they're doing. That is a snub to AOC. That is a snub to Bernie Sanders. That is a snub to Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Ro Khanna. That's exactly what that is. So uh, just understand the, the, the sly tricks that are going on there. Now, um, let's further break this down. Democrats cheered... Trump announcing an illegal coup in Venezuela. Oh, we recognize the p person who we're declaring um, the president, uh, Juan Guaido. Wait, did he win an election? Oh, that's right, he didn't win an election, an election. So as you say, I care about freedom and democracy. Yay. Oh, you do? Well, then how can you fucking casually tweet that a guy who didn't win an election is now the leader of a foreign country? And also, by the way, shut the fuck up about, oh my God. Russia's meddling in our elections by using Twitter trolls that nobody fucking even saw. They're meddling. Meanwhile, we casually tweet a new leader of a foreign country. We have declared that this leader is no longer the leader. We want this guy. And you have the nerve to say, anybody else is meddling? Bitch, you're more than meddling. We need a stronger word than just meddling. So I never want to hear anybody, uh, you know, in the U.S. talk about meddling ever again. But Democrats cheered... Nancy Pelosi cheered 
this insane, lunatic, dictatorial president declaring, oh, we've now decided who the leader of this foreign country is going to be. And by the way, in a different part, she did not cheer Trump talking about how we're trying to make peace with North Korea. Think about how backwards that is. And this is why the Democratic Party is ineffectual. And this is why you have the Republican Party in the position that they're in, because the Democrats are not actually an opposition party. You heard exactly what happened there. She didn't cheer peace. She did cheer casually backing an illegal coup. That tells you about their priorities. Nancy Pelosi stuck in the 1990s with triangulation with the New Democrats. She's right down the middle, corporate centrist all day long, baby. She's like, I don't hate black people. I don't hate gay people. But boy, oh boy, do I want to you know, uh, help Wall Street deregulate. And boy, oh boy, do I back the military-industrial complex. Vapid ideology. Um, then when they say, oh, I stand with the Venezuelan people. Really? Because I saw a poll the other day that said over 80% of Venezuelans don't want the U.S. to meddle in their affairs. So if you stand with the Venezuelan people, you would say, hey, listen, we're, we got nothing to do with this. We're staying out of it. And we, we never would just casually tweet who the new leader of your country is. And by the way, I've seen so many terrible takes on Venezuela. The argument coming from the left in the United States, save a few examples. Yes, there are a few fringe fringe examples of people who are trying to defend Maduro on the merits of Maduro. Let me be crystal clear about where I stand. I am not defending Maduro. I am not making any claim at all on Maduro. The claim that I'm making is a very simple one. International law applies to the United States as well. The, the smug, arrogant idea that we have the right to just declare what another, who another country's leader is? No. And if you think that's true, then you're, look at the assumption you just bought into. The assumption, the premise that you said, I agree with that premise, is the U.S. has the right to override uh, international law and say, oh, yeah, we get to willy-nilly decide who leads uh, in other countries. You had the President of the United States casually tweet who the new leader of a foreign country is. We don't have that right. We don't have that ability. If you think we have that ability, you're wrong, and you don't believe in a system of international law. You believe in American exceptionalism, which really is American supremacy, which means we're above everybody else. So we don't believe everybody's equal. We believe we're above everybody else. So you can take a principled stand on the issue of international law. You don't have to say anything about Maduro. You, you could agree with them, disagree with them, have no opinion on them whatsoever. It's not about Maduro. It's about having a principled belief in international law. Okay, um, then he says, well, the socialist policies ruin the country. Now, listen, again, like I said, I don't defend Maduro. Um, I think there are absolutely aspects of Maduro that are authoritarian. And if there's anything that you know from watching this show, it's that I consider myself a libertarian leftist. So what that means is I'm a deep opponent of authoritarianism in all of its forms, whether it's on the left or on the right. Um, But that is a massively misleading statement. Now, are there some things that the Venezuelan government did that were horrendous for the Venezuelan people? I'm sure of it. But is Trump just totally whitewashing the idea of economic warfare against the Venezuelan government and, by extension, the Venezuelan people? Yes, Western sanctions have also crippled the country. So to pretend like, oh, it's all, it's all uh, the Venezuelan government, that's just not true. Now, you can have a, 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 an intellectually honest debate about, hey, what are we talking about here in terms of the percentages? So, like, 
is, is this, the situation of Venezuela 50% Maduro's fault, 50% the fault of Western sanctions? I don't know. You have to have that discussion, look at all of the evidence, and come to a reasonable conclusion. Maybe it's 70-20. Maybe it's 70% Maduro's fault. Uh, wait, 70-30 it would be. I don't know how to do math. Maybe it's 70-30. Maybe it's 70-30 in the other direction in terms of sanctions versus the Venezuelan government. I don't know. And I'm being upfront about the fact that I don't know. But I do know both things play a major part. So to try to pretend like, um, oh, it's all, it's all just socialism bad, socialism bad. Um, and then finally, I need everybody to understand something. They, never, they will never um, accurately explain your views when trying to, to counter them. So in other words, they do a classic straw man argument. Uh, they build up the straw man, knock down the straw man, and go, ah, see, that's, I'm so right. I just wrecked your ideology. Yeah, but nobody said on the left, like, oh, uh, Venezuela is our ideal system. Virtually everybody who I've seen talk about this issue says very clearly, I kind of want like a Scandinavian model. And it just so happens the Scandinavians kick our ass in virtually every relevant category. When it's healthcare, when it's quality of life, when it's, whether it's strength of the, um, the middle class, whether it's self-reported happiness, the list goes on and on in the ways that they destroy us. So they never say, oh, by the way, here's your ideology. It's represented in Sweden, <laughs> and here's why that's bad. Because they can't make that argument. And the few people who have tried to make that argument, they've become a fucking living parody. It's what happened with a Fox business host who tried to take on that argument. I think it was with Denmark. Uh, scary Denmark, so bad. And then if people from Denmark, including... Uh, politicians were laughing her out of the room and breaking down everything she said and explaining how it's factually wrong. And so in order to defeat you, they have to strawman you, which says what? They can't defeat you. So I think that's incredibly telling. And actually, last point is, notice what uh, Trump said there. He goes, well, you know, this country was not built on socialism. This country was built on liberty and independence and freedom from government coercion and control. Listen, there are many aspects of this country that I love, many aspects of the Constitution that I love. I love freedom of speech. I love separation of church and state. Um, I don't think our entire system is something we should scrap, okay? There's plenty of aspects of this country I would defend. Um, but who are we kidding? This country was also built on Native American genocide and slavery. So when you say... This country is built on liberty and independence. Yeah, liberty and independence for white men, particularly old white men, and um, freedom from government coercion and control. Again, ask women about that, because they didn't have the right to vote until much later on, treated as property. Ask uh, black people about that. They were slaves when they were here. Now, you might say that's a cheap point, but if you say that, you're wrong, because he said very clearly this nation was founded on X, Y, and Z. Totally whitewashing our founding. Now, again, I just told you I would defend many aspects of this country, like freedom of speech, like uh, protection from unreasonable search and seizure, the Fourth Amendment, protection from cruel unusual punishment, the Eighth Amendment. There's a lot about this country that I love, and I love dearly. But you have to be honest about every aspect of the country. And you also have to be honest about the legacy of socialism in our own country. Because there are, you know, if you say socialism is, the government, well, then, yeah, we also already have many socialist aspects in this country. The classic example people give are roads and fire department, the fire department and policemen, and these guys love the military, but then they also slam socialism. Well, the military is the government, 
Um, you know, another example of amazing social democracy in this country is Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And by the way, those programs poll overwhelmingly popular. Overwhelmingly, they're the most popular programs in the country. And by the way, FDR, social democratic president we had, got elected four times and died in office. And he was so, he was such a dominant force. And he was so popular that the Republicans had to come up with, hey, maybe we should do term limits. Because if we don't do term limits, we're never going to get elected because America will never say no to a social democrat. So, unsurprisingly, Trump's explanation of things is dead wrong. And also, it's just terrible to see Nancy Pelosi and half the Democrats basically cheer um, this attack on social democracy. Because, again, that's what the real left-wing wave in this country is. And that's based on what they're proposing. It's overwhelmingly popular, and you have the most powerful man in the world smearing that movement, and the opposition party, half of the opposition party cheering it. And you saw Bernie's face as they were cheering that. You saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's face. And basically what their face is saying is, oh yeah? (laughs) We'll see what happens, big guy, because I got news for you. We have momentum, you have dick. Okay, let me do, let me do one more, then we'll take a break. Trump and criminal justice reform, this should be a quick one. So President Trump brought up criminal justice reform in his State of the Union address. Take a look at this. Last year, I heard through friends the story of Alice Johnson. I was deeply moved. In 1997, Alice was sentenced to life in prison as a first-time nonviolent drug offender. Over the next 22 years, she became a prison minister inspiring others to choose a better path. She had a big impact on that prison population and far beyond. Alice's story underscores the disparities and unfairness that can exist in criminal sentencing and the need to remedy this total injustice. She served almost that 22 years and had expected to be in prison for the remainder of her life. In June, I commuted Alice's sentence. When I saw Alice's beautiful family greet her at the prison gates, hugging and kissing and crying and laughing, I knew I did something right. Alice is with us tonight, and she is a terrific woman. Terrific. Alice, please.
Travis, thank you for reminding us that we always have the power to shape our own destiny. Thank you very much, Alice. Thank you very much. Inspired by stories like Alice's, my administration worked closely with members of both parties to sign the First Step Act into law. Big deal. Big deal. So there's a lot to say about this clip. First of all, Trump really did have an opportunity that many presidents don't have. And what I mean by that is he amassed such a loyal and giant following. um, And that following, I think, was largely not based on ideology. I mean, in some ways it was, but in other ways it wasn't. It was kind of based on raw partisanship in many respects. So because of that, Trump was in a position where he could have totally bucked uh, right-wing orthodoxy and he still would have kept the party with him. So, and, and by the way, you see that uh, like with protectionism, for example. The Republican base now is way more pro-protectionism than they used to be total free traders, also known as just pro-outsourcing and pro-corporate uh, hegemony. Um, and because Daddy Trump said, no, I don't agree with that, All of a sudden, all these people who were right-wing voters who we were told were doctrinaire in favor of the free market, turns out, no, they're not. So in other words, what I mean by that is, this is an example of Trump freeing a nonviolent drug offender. Now, people on the far right are not, they're supposed to be, you know, against that. They're supposed to be in favor of law and order, lock up anybody and uh, throw away the key and we're for punishment. And Trump comes along and on this issue, he says, no, I don't agree with that. And he still keeps the base with him on this issue. So in other words, if Trump came in and he decided, you know what, I'm going to do Medicare for all, the Republican base, the base voters would have been like, yeah, why not? Let's do that. Because they're more with Trump than they are married to the ideology. So he had an opportunity and he blew it because on 95% of the issues, he's just doing standard uh, Republican policies. Every now and then he throws a, a, you know, a wrench in there and he flips it in a different direction, like on North Korea, for example. Um, another issue is this one right here with the First Step Act and criminal justice reform and pardoning Alice Johnson. But there's actually a bigger issue here, which is the failure of the media. Now, why does the media play into this? Here's why. Because if they were remotely good at what they did, if they were half decent, what they would do is they would use this issue of Alice Johnson and the fact that he's bragging about it to then press Trump on the broader principle If you agree that Alice Johnson shouldn't be locked up, what you're doing is you're saying, hey, I don't think nonviolent drug offenders should be locked up. I think nonviolent drug offenders don't really belong in prison. So if the media was smart, they would press Trump and say, hey, Mr. Trump, we still have, you know, whatever. I don't know the exact number, but probably hundreds of thousands of people who are locked up who are nonviolent drug offenders. If you're okay with freeing Alice Johnson, why are you not pardoning or commuting the sentences for all these nonviolent drug offenders? Now, what that would do is it would put pressure on the government to do the right thing, and it would be the media doing what their job is actually supposed to be, which is holding powerful people accountable and doing public good. And, but it didn't, doesn't even occur in the slightest to anybody in corporate media to say, hey, maybe I should use my position to try to do something good in this world, and to hold the powerful accountable, and to point out to Trump, hey, listen, this is the logic you bought into. This is something you obviously agree with in principle. Why just Alice Johnson? Why not go further? 
Why not free all the nonviolent drug offenders? So I think what this shows me more than anything is the failure of the media. Because here you have an opportunity where you can press Trump because he did some good in the world here. So why not press him to do more good? If the media did their job, that's exactly what they would do. But they don't, it doesn't even cross their fucking mind to do that. Because also, God forbid, they give him credit on anything. Well, then, you know, they're saying he's good and that bucks the narrative and they don't, they don't want that to become the new narrative that he did something good. So it's, you know, just act like it didn't happen and don't talk about it, even though it's definitely a good thing. And listen, you guys know if you watch this show for a long time, I just care about getting the right policies implemented. I don't care how they get implemented. I don't care who implements them. I just care about getting the proper outcomes. So since that's my position, that's the first thing I would do is press Trump on that issue. Say, obviously, you agree with freeing nonviolent drug offenders. You did it with Alice Johnson. Why not do it some more? So, yeah, I mean, that, that's really what should happen because there does appear to be a, a consensus in the country that we should legalize marijuana and we should free nonviolent drug offenders. And Washington is slowly creeping towards that position, but it's going too slow. And it would help if we had a media that was doing its job to push us further along in that process. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Trump and the Cold War, Trump demagogues on the issue of abortion, and Tulsi Gabbard gets smeared on Morning Joe. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
Alright, bitches, we back. We, 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 back. Alright, this next story flips a narrative exactly on its head, and it really is all the all the evidence you need that some people have lost their minds in the Trump era. <clears throat> so President Trump announced a new Cold War in his uh, speech this week to Congress, and he got cheers, which is really scary. Take a look. As part of our military buildup, the United States is developing a state-of-the-art missile defense system. Under my administration, we will never apologize for advancing America's interests. For example, decades ago, the United States entered into a treaty with Russia in which we agreed to limit and reduce our missile capability. While we followed the agreement and the rules to the letter, Russia repeatedly violated its terms. It's been going on for many years. That is why I announced that the United States is officially withdrawing from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF Treaty. Perhaps... negotiate a different agreement, adding China and others, or perhaps we can't, in which case we will outspend and out-innovate all others by far. So what he's doing there is he's announcing the end to a crowning achievement at the end of the Cold War. So when we ended the Cold War, we had this treaty with Russia, and now that's coming to an end, which means almost officially we're in a new Cold War. And I need you to stop and think about all the rhetoric that you hear on the issue of Russia today. What do you hear? Is that what you hear? Do you hear, oh my God, we're in a new Cold War, there's an escalation between the U.S. and Russia, We're really doing a lot of things where we're rolling the dice with humanity, like, for example, sending our uh, military ships, our our Navy ships to the Black Sea, which is right by Russia's border. Um, We're building up NATO troops on Russia's border. That's something we're doing. Um, The other thing that Trump did is he tried to axe an oil deal between Europe and Russia because he wanted Europe to make an oil deal with us instead. Um, In the case of Venezuela... Again, we're on the opposite side of Russia trying to do a, to fucking casually do an illegal coup and uh, get our own puppet in there so we can jack oil from the biggest oil reserves in the world. So as there are like just multiple ways that we are escalating with Russia and marching to the brink of war, but really just increasing tensions in a way that's unhealthy for the entire world, All the rhetoric you hear is, 
Trump is Putin's puppet. Is, so let me ask people, is that what a Putin puppet would do? Would he pull out of a fucking um, treaty with the country that's supposed to be pulling his strings? Is that what we would do? We would have a fucking nuclear arms race with somebody who we're under the thumb of. That's not the way it works. And honestly, I know you guys are going to think this is nuts, but I, I literally saw articles that said, this plays right into Vladimir Putin's hands. What? It plays into Vladimir Putin's hands to have the U.S. and Russia permanently on the brink of war, escalating on a, on a daily basis, and pulling out of the crowning achievement of the Cold War? That makes absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense. See, and this is why um, I get so frustrated, is because all of the, the Trump-Russia narrative, it ignores the actual policies towards Russia. See, for me, to increase my vulnerability on this issue, I wish we would move towards peace with Russia. I wish we would de-escalate. I wish we would stay uh, in this treaty and make new treaties, you know, and not do a NATO buildup on their border, not have uh, warships right by their border in the Black Sea. So I actually would de-escalate. But Trump is in a position where, let's say he does de-escalate, obviously that means you're Putin's puppet. And even now when Trump is escalated, he's being accused of uh, being Putin's puppet. Pulling out of an agreement with Russia. Ah, exactly what Vladimir Putin wants us to do. March towards the brink of nuclear annihilation. Uh, and by the way, people, Republicans and Democrats, cheering, pulling out of a crowning achievement of the Cold War. Cheering the end of the Cold War and entering a new Cold War. Which tells you what? Maybe that everybody in that room is captured by the military-industrial complex. You want to talk about collusion... How about the collusion between the military industrial complex and U.S. politicians? That's some collusion that's, that's some collusion that's real as a heart attack, son. So, man, this is fucking crazy, bro. Holy shit. He announces a new Cold War, and it barely made, and barely made headlines. Nobody talked about it. People were focusing on other parts of the speech. Even when he directly contradicts the Trump-Russia narrative, like he's Putin's puppet, they just don't talk about it, or they spin it so that they say, ah, you're doing Putin's bidding again by marching towards nuclear annihilation. It's just so stupid, and I can't take it. And understand, guys, like I've said from the beginning, I support the Mueller investigation. Mueller's going to get him on a thousand different business things, but I think that that means that the day Trump is no longer president, he will be indicted. Um, at, when he's president, you can't indict him. It's, you'd have to impeach him. I don't think he's going to get impeached, and... Um, I don't think they're going to find this grand narrative of like treason, treason or collusion or anything like that. Um, so I support Mueller and I know Trump is a dirty businessman and he's probably got ties to Russian oligarchs. Um, but just understand that that grand narrative of treason is, is not true. And it doesn't matter how much evidence you present in the opposite direction, people are still going to stick to it to the point where it's now reached mania levels where evidence that directly contradicts their theory, they still spin as proving their theory, or they just ignore it completely. Okay. 
Final one from uh, the State of the Union. So President Trump demagogued on the issue of abortion this week. Listen to this, and then I'll explain um, why this is so wrong and why this is incredibly misleading. Lawmakers in New York cheered with delight upon the passage of legislation that would allow a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments from birth. These are living, feeling, beautiful babies who will never get the chance to share their love and their dreams with the world. And then we had the case of the governor of Virginia where he stated he would execute a baby after birth to defend the dignity of every person I am asking Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late-term abortion of children who can feel pain in a mother's womb. together to build a culture that cherishes innocent life. All right, first let's point out the obvious irony. Um, a culture that cherishes life? You're bombing seven countries right now. Your first military act as president was a raid that Obama refused to approve because uh, we didn't have solid enough intelligence. You approved it, and a seven-year-old girl ended up dying. A seven-year-old American girl ended up dying in that raid. You know, you've increased drone strikes 432%. Don't tell me about, you know, I want to promote a culture of life. The first thing you would do if you wanted to promote a culture of life would be to not bomb seven different countries and also not casually tweet an illegal coup in Venezuela. So spare me. Spare me this notion that you care about life. You, you only care about life if it's a fetus. And then the second it becomes a person, you say, you know what, you're on your own. Here's some bootstraps, bitch. Don't come to me looking for food or a social safety net or anything like that because we ain't going to provide it. Don't come to me looking for a living wage because I'm not in favor of it. So I just, I hate that hypocrisy of, uh, you know, and also, by the way, people who support literally the death penalty, talking about a culture of life. You support the death penalty. That's the opposite of life. <laughs> so that, they don't care. They really mean it in a narrow sense and only when they're talking about fetuses. Now, why is this so misleading? And this is, this is why I'm covering this, because this shows you how loose these guys play with the facts. Is murdering a baby legal in any state in the U.S.? Do I even need to answer that, seriously? Do I need to be the one to come out here and say, no, murdering babies is not legal. Everybody knows murdering babies is not legal. It's not legal. You'll go to prison if you murder a baby. You know what it's called? Murder. <laughs> That's considered murder. When it comes to late-term abortion, the only time that's done is to save the life of the mother. So you have this... No win situation. No win. 
where it's like, okay, either the mother dies or the baby dies. That's when it's done. Now notice how they frame the issue. They frame the issue as if, you know, to steal from an old Sarah Silverman joke, you have this person who's just willy-nilly like, hey, you want to go to the movies and afterwards grab an abortion? Like, yeah, we just, there was a, a Republican congressperson, this says everything right here. There was a Republican congressperson, there was a story in The Onion or one of these other satirical papers. And the story said, um, you know, mall opens up new IMAX theater and abortion center. The Republican congressperson thought it was real. I'm going to repeat that. The Republican congressperson thought it was real. A story about uh, new, mall opens up new IMAX center, uh, IMAX and abortion clinic. See, but that's, that's the, the disposition they're coming from. That's what, the, what their assumptions are says everything. So when Trump says, and these Democrats want to murder babies, everybody's like, oh, yeah, all the evil Democrats want to murder babies. <laughs> There's not an ounce of skepticism because they're already prone to believe these things. So you could stretch the story as far as you want, and it's like, yeah, sure, that's exactly what it is. No, murdering babies is illegal in every fucking state, you jackass. And the only time late-term abortion is done is to save the mother's life. So maybe if you actually cared about life, like you said you do, you would, I don't know, fight to end the death penalty and maybe stop bombing seven different countries. Now we go to Tulsi Gabbard. This story really got under my skin. So Tulsi Gabbard went on Morning Joe, which is basically the epicenter of establishment politics. And uh, they proceeded to pelt her with questions about Assad and be incredibly condescending towards her. So let's watch, and then I'll explain why this is so out of bounds. Do you think Assad is serious about the pursuit of peace? Do you think Assad is our enemy? Assad is not the enemy of the United States because the United uh, Syria does not pose a direct threat to the United States. What do you say to, to Democratic voters who watched you go over there, and, 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 and what do you say to military members who have been deployed repeatedly in Syria, pushing back against Assad? Uh, people who have been deployed to Syria have been there focused on their mission, which has been to defeat ISIS. Our troops have not gone to Syria to uh, wage yet another costly, destructive regime change war. And many troops I hear from express frustration Mm -hmm. at the fact that our country continues to wage senseless, costly regime change wars, followed by nation-building missions, leading to uh, situations like we see in Afghanistan. So many examples of our troops being deployed, their lives put on the line, without understanding what the clear mission or objective is, and how that mission actually serves the security of the American people in the United States. Which I think a lot of Americans would agree with you there, but again, going back to Assad, Assad is not an enemy, is he an an adversary Mm. of the United States? We have to look to who poses a threat to the United States. I understand that, but there are a lot of people who don't pose a direct military threat to the United States who consider themselves to be adversaries of the United States. Vladimir Putin poses uh, or considers uh, uh, America to be an enemy. We consider Russia to be an adversary. I'm just asking, do you consider 
Assad to be an adversary of the United States. When I look at whether it's Syria or Turkey or Russia or China or other countries in the world, I look at what are their interests mm -hmm. and are their interests counter to our interests. So what would you say he is to the United States? If you cannot say that he's an adversary or an enemy, what is Assad to the U.S.? What is the word? You can describe it however you want to describe it. My, my, how you describe my it. point is that whether it is Syria or any of these other countries, we need to look at how their interests are counter to or aligned with ours. Are, is, are Assad's interests aligned with ours? What are Assad's interests? Assad seems interested in the slaughter primarily of his own people, in part. I mean, how does that line up? Survival, yeah. Say bad things about the official baddie right now, please. Why won't you do it? Why won't you say bad things about the official baddie? I need you to say bad things about the official baddie. Why aren't you saying bad things about the official baddie? Listen, guys, this is propaganda. That's what it is. Now, don't get me wrong. Is Assad a terrible guy? Yes. Has Tulsi Gabbard even admitted that Assad is, and I quote, a brutal dictator? Yes. Her words. Assad is a, quote, brutal dictator. But why are they begging for her to continue to condemn Assad, talk about how evil he is, talk about how wrong he is? It's very simple. We have recent historical examples you can go to. What happened in 2002 in the lead up to the Iraq war? All you heard was how evil Saddam Hussein is, how wrong Saddam Hussein is, how bad Saddam Hussein is. What happened in the lead up to um, Libya? All you heard about was how evil Gaddafi is, how wrong Gaddafi is, how terrible Gaddafi is. Honestly, even Obama, when he said, the first time he ran for president, I will talk to Iran, quote, without preconditions, he said. Across, across the board, corporate Democrats, Republicans, all, you're naive, you're stupid, you're dumb, you can't do that, why would you do that? They smeared him as a dictator lover simply for saying he would talk to our enemies without preconditions. Now, what do they say about um, Tulsi Gabbard today? Dictator lover. So this is how you build propaganda up for a war. You get the consensus to be where everybody has to nod in approval, has to speak the mantras all at the same time. Oh, yes, he's so evil, he's so wrong, he's so bad. This way, you build the logic up so it's ironclad, so that when they say, all right, we're going to topple them, you're not allowed to say no. Because then what do they say to you? Oh, why would you defend a dictator? You dictator lover, you don't care about human rights. When the reality is what? Nothing could be further from the truth. For fuck's sake, when Saddam was at the height of his atrocities against the Kurds, he was doing it with U.S. money and U.S. weapons and U.S. backing as our ally. Look at what we're doing right this second in Yemen. We're backing Saudi Arabia, a dictatorial theocracy. We're backing them as they slaughter women and children in, Saudi Arabia, in uh, Yemen and starve the fucking country to death. So people, it's so easy to mislead people and to make them think that we give a shit at all about morality. For fuck's sake, guys, we back 73% of the world's dictatorships. If we cared about morality and we cared about human rights, step one would be don't prop up 73% of the world's dictatorships. But instead, we go to one of the bad guys who we don't actively support and we focus on that guy because we're trying to build the logic for regime change, and by the way, we're literally on both sides of this conflict, let's be clear, because it's a fact, we covered the study, 
that 60%, and this is as of like three or four years ago, it might even be more now, 60% of the rebels are jihadists. So more than half of the rebels are jihadists, but the U.S. wants Assad gone, but also in theory, of course, we want to kill ISIS and al-Qaeda, so what do you do? I don't know. Arm both sides of the war. Have Pentagon-backed rebels fighting CIA-backed rebels, which is what's happening, which the LA Times reported on a few years back, how we're literally on both sides of the war. So just understand what this is. It doesn't matter. She could go out there and condemn Assad till the fucking cows come home, and she would still be smeared. Why? Because ultimately her position is, let's not do any more regime change wars. And that's unacceptable. You have to always be in favor of regime change wars. You have to always use, use human rights as the facade to then prop up U.S. puppet dictators to serve our corporate interests. Listen, people, no matter how much you talk about it, people really do struggle with this point. But the reality is, we don't care about human rights. We don't care about altruism. We don't care about justice. What we do around the world is 100% for power, domination, control of markets, natural resources. Think of the world as a geopolitical chessboard, and it's us versus Russia, and we're always constantly jockeying for position to try to have more power, more control, more domination, and to control markets. So if you ever stop looking at international affairs through that prism, you're wrong. You're wrong, because that's, that's, the, that's the lens that everybody else is viewing it through. That's the lens that the people in power are viewing it through. So when you have a voice step up that says, no, I'm going to fucking plant the flag and I'm the anti-war person, they are going to get smeared till the cows come home. And it's the same playbook, just like I said, in 2002, George Galloway went to visit Saddam Hussein. Why? Because he loved Saddam Hussein? No, because he didn't want fucking war. And he was smeared to a dictator lover. To this day, he smeared as a dictator lover because he tried to stop war, and he was right to try to stop the war. So they said Saddam, uh, dictator lover for Saddam Hussein in 2002. They said it for Gaddafi in whatever year that was, maybe 2009. They... Uh, now they're saying it for Assad. They, like I said, they said it for Obama with the Iran negotiations. And that's always going to be the playbook. You're always sympathetic to a dictator because you believe as a matter of principle, as a matter of principle, the U.S. shouldn't violate international law willy-nilly. And that's, that's Tulsi's position. We shouldn't have the right to just go around and topple foreign governments and meddle in these countries. We don't have the right to do that. She's smeared as the extremist one. Look at her answer to the question. Hey, would you say uh, Assad is an enemy of the United States? She goes, no, he's not an enemy. He doesn't pose a direct threat to us. That is exactly the correct answer. How can anybody say that's not the right answer? How, what would make somebody an enemy? Let me ask you, what would make somebody an enemy of the United States? Oh, if they, uh, if they want to attack us. That's right. Yes, that's what makes an enemy. It doesn't make them an enemy if they're just a bad guy, bad leader, or even a dictator. Like I said, we back 73% of the world's dictatorships. So that's the correct answer, and she smeared for it. She's smeared for it. And by the way, none of those idiots on the panel have any idea that 60% of the rebels are jihadists. None of them have any idea. None of them have any idea that our weapons have funded the jihadists, and we've also funded both sides of the war. And uh, that's been reported. In fact, we have a story later today. Also, same thing in Yemen. We're giving weapons and money to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is giving it to Sunni militias on the ground. Sunni militias include al-Qaeda and jihadists. You, they should be getting angry at that, but they're not. Notice, in Morning Joe, the epicenter of establishment politics, they saved their anger for those who bucked the, the, the dominant narrative in D.C. Their anger should be at the fucking policymakers, the neocon policymakers, who've been wrong every step of the way about every single war, 
and are now trying to push us into a fucking other one, that's who they should be mad at. But instead, they're mad at the one of few people who stuck their neck out and said, hey, maybe we shouldn't do regime change wars. Um, maybe even if you say Assad's a bad guy, and even if you say uh, Assad's a brutal dictator, not our place to do that. Not our place. And he's not an official enemy. He's not trying to attack Kentucky. We want me to tell you. Listen, when should we use U.S. military force to defend the country from attack? That's when we should use it. Outside of that, you want to stop a genocide? Okay, the U.N. can get together uh, and we could go, go at it, not unilaterally, but with everybody together. Because we're not supposed to be a nation above nations. We're a nation among nations. So that's the reasonable response. That's Tulsi's response. And they're apoplectic. Oh, we've been told this is the official baddie. Weird. Isn't it strange how the idiots on Morning Joe never melt down over, oh, there's a genocide of the Rohingya Muslims. Quick, do regime change in Myanmar. Weird. Why are they not doing that? Maybe it's because the elites in D.C., the neocons who are really controlling everything, they're not focusing on that. They don't want that to happen. So they don't care about a fucking, uh, you know, genocide of Rohingya. They don't care about uh, a genocide in Sudan or the Congo. They don't care about any of that shit, which is why they're not talking about it. They do care about, oh, we need to do regime change in Syria. So talk about how bad Assad is endlessly. And then if anybody bucks that narrative, smear them. It's amazing that this playbook, they go back to this playbook over and over and over and over and over and um, get away with it. They get away with it. But guess what? Maybe the American people are, are catching on because the American people agree with Tulsi. Tulsi's a non-interventionist. The American people agree with Tulsi. So if she keeps fighting back, it's going to be a hell of a thing to watch because I'm telling you, just like the corporate Democrats are a house of cards because they don't really represent the policies people want represented, corporate media is a house of cards. Nobody likes these people. Who the fuck likes these people? I'll tell you who likes them. D.C. elitists. That's where, that's where people watch Morning Joe. Sitting in, you know, not just D.C., New York, too. The Wall Street assholes kid with their feet up, just snorted a couple lines, harassing their secretary. And they're like, oh, yeah, more than you. <laughs> this is great. Fucking neocons, John Bolton sitting in his office watching this shit. Regular people are not like, oh, we must topple Assad. No, regular people are like, bitch, lower my fucking medical bills. I'm about to go bankrupt. Sweet Jesus. Really is amazing. Uh, it really is stunning that every time they do it, smearing her for refusing to, you know, harshly condemn a foreign leader on a fucking talk show. What do I want for my president? I would want a president who's willing to negotiate and compromise and make deals. You know, I want a president who wants to work towards peace. I don't want a president who's going to be a fucking gunslinger who's like, oh, yeah, you're evil, you're bad, you're bad, you're evil. As we back fucking Saudi Arabia, they do a genocide. Uh, the hypocrisy is just overwhelming the, the misplaced priorities are overwhelming, and they're all just puppets of the establishment in the deep state spewing the narrative that they want to be spread. Okay. Fox News got super angry about something here, and you're going to love this. So Fox News got incredibly angry about the surging popularity of left-wing ideas, 
and um, look at their apoplectic response where they literally think it's a good idea to argue against the concept of fairness. what seems to be a movement against capitalism in this country. This is a piece in Politico uh, just published, Soak the Rich. Americans say, go for it. In this piece, it talks about uh, how recent polling is showing that the American public is increasingly on board with raising taxes on the rich. As uh, evidence, we pulled up this latest Fox News poll on the issue, whether Americans were raising taxes on the wealthy, on incomes over $10 million. Uh, Those that are in favor of that, 70%, Charles, over a million dollars in income, 65% are in favor of raising taxes. The idea of fairness has been promoted in our schools for a long time, and we're starting to see kids who grew up in this notion that fairness above all, uh, and and, and now they're becoming voting age, and they're bringing this ideology with them. Okay, that might be one of my favorite clips of all time. Because as they're talking to their ever-shrinking bubble, they're like acting as if they're the ones with the common sense. You young kids, nah. They care about fairness, and justice, and reason, and logic. So gross. <laughs> I love how, listen, the poll is telling too, because it, I don't know if you caught the details there, but 70% of the American people want to raise the top marginal tax rate for income over $10 million a year. Then it was 65% of the American people support raising taxes for income over $1 million a year. I don't know if you caught what was below that, though. It said for $250,000, that number is 44% want to raise taxes for people who make over $250,000 a year. So in other words, it's, it, the American people, again, this, in my opinion... This is actually a a very moderate position because what they're saying is, hey, listen, you want to be rich within reason? You want to make $250,000 a year or $500,000 a year? That's a lot of fucking money, dog. But again, it's not a majority that wants to raise taxes on those people where people start to like really roll their eyes and go, okay, come on, is when you get over that million dollars a year line. Listen, I got news for you. million dollars a year is a lot of money in any county in the United States. Doesn't matter. Manhattan, fucking Orange County, doesn't matter. You are rich if you make a million dollars a year or more. So 65% of Americans say, yeah, over a million dollars I want to raise taxes. Ocasio-Cortez's idea was a 70% top marginal tax rate for over $10 million in income per year. Again, I got news for you. Internationally... That is an incredibly moderate position. I mean, you look at Sweden, you look at Denmark, those countries, I honestly think it's when you get over like 100,000 or even 200,000 maybe, where that's when they knock up that marginal tax rate super high. So what you see here is how skewed the Overton window is in the discourse in America, and actually not America, in the establishment class in America. So this is corporate media. That Overton window skews way to the right. So now they're looking at totally moderate proposals, and they're like, oh, this is far left. Bitch, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) I mean, listen, that's why with an Overton window that made sense, they would be begging for leaders like me. (laughs) Because there are people who are totally post-capitalist who want to fully democratize the workplace, not even allow for any instances of the traditional capitalist business hierarchy with an owner, a boss, and then people working underneath. And, you know... On a reasonable spectrum, I'm the center. 
Because what am I calling for? I want Medicare for all. I want free college. I want a living wage. I want to end the wars. I want a right to a union. Um, you know, I want very moderate policies. You know, I, I'm okay with the wealth disparity that we saw in like the 1970s in this country when a CEO made like 25 times more than the average worker. There are some people who go, no, 25 times more than the average worker is not fucking good enough. But right now in this country, we have CEOs making 300 times what the average worker makes, and the CEO pays a lower tax rate because of all the loopholes and deductions and the fucking army of lawyers that they have. That's why Warren Buffett put out a challenge. He said, any CEO on Wall Street who can show me they pay more as a percentage in taxes than their secretary, I'll give them a million dollars of my own money. And nobody collected because nobody could because they were paying less in taxes than their fucking secretaries. Because with all the loopholes and deductions and all the fucking army of lawyers that find a way to lower their tax rate, turns out the secretary making 80 grand a year was paying more in taxes. So finally, you get this movement of social democracy in this country where people try to bring us back to sanity and they say, all right, hey, we got to fix this problem. We got to raise the top marginal tax rate. We, like, we have to focus on things that make sense. They flip out over it because the Overton window on Fox News is fucking bordering on fascism. To them, it's like, well, what do you mean? Obviously, have like a flat tax rate, let billionaires run everything, and wage endless war. And they think that they're popular. No, you're not popular. I mean, you are popular with a small segment of the population, but, you know, that's because you're a cult and you're brainwashing people. <laughs> and your constant Democrat bashing all day long is just what they're there for. Turns out when you actually state what you're for, most people are against it. Even most Republicans are for uh, Ocasio-Cortez's plan. So suck on that is what I have to say. All right, now do a little old school secular talk clip here or at least so it would seem. Phil Robertson is one of the guys from Duck Dynasty. Uh, He looks like a member of ZZ Top. For those of you who don't know who ZZ Top is, Google image search it it right now. You're welcome. Um, And this guy decided it would be a good idea for him and Neil Cavuto to talk about health care policy. Who doesn't want to hear this guy's ideas on health care policy? Take a listen. This was glorious. Uh, Contrary to what Kamala Harris said, she says, elect me and everything's free. Look, everybody can be have their own health care. The government's going to finance the whole thing. It's not going to cost but $30 trillion. I'm offering you the greatest deal you ever had. Elect me, and everything will be free. But she's saying that other people who have been getting away with financial huh. murder will pay for it, the rich. What, I'm, say- you. what I'm saying is that, Kamala, I already have health care. It's given to me by God, eternal health care. I'm guaranteed to be raised from the dead. I have life and immortality given to me by God through Jesus so Christ. So people get sick on earth in and, human form. So and, and they would give, you advise? The temporary reprieve is not worth it. I'm telling her I have eternal health care, and it's free. Doctors can give you a little temporary reprieve, right. but they cannot save you from physical death. The doctors who treat you, they die too. So you're not dismissing that we need people need health care, right? 
It's just I didn't have health care for 50 years, and someone says, now I'm rich and famous, so I said, Miss Kay, you can buy every kind of insurance known to man if you want to. Well, but I, I never needed it for 50 years, so there you go. Well, it's done you some good here. He totally baffled a Fox News host who understood that his job was to try to get along with Phil, Phil Robertson and just yuck it up and have a casual conversation. And he was ready to agree with him on everything he said. But even to Neil freaking Cavuto, he was like, well, you're not arguing against the idea of health care existing, are you? He's like, well, you know, I never needed it because I got Jesus. You know, good point, Phil. I believe that not a single person in human history who has been a devout Christian has ever died. <laughs> or, well, actually, to be fair to him, his point is they all went to heaven. You sure about that, bro? <laughs> you just said shit. What, what I find amazing about, like, uh, fundamentalist Christians, or actually fundamentalists from any religion, is how culturally brainwashed they are. So, in other words, what I mean by that is, he, Phil Robertson was raised in a context, it's not like he was raised in a Buddhist household, or a Hindu household, or a Muslim household, or, you know, whatever, a household believing in paganism. No, he was raised in a Christian household. And because mom and daddy done told me Jesus is God, that's what he defaulted to. And so, like, the cultural brainwashing is, it's just, it's a lazy, biased worldview. Because why would you, of the thousands of religions that exist in the world, why would you assume that, I think it's over 4,000, I looked this up one time, and I used to know the number, it's a good number to have handy, let me look it up, number of religions that exist in the world. 4,200. <laughs> so of the 4,200 religions that exist in the world, why are you so convinced that you got it right? For all you know, there's a fucking random-ass tribe in the Amazon jungle who fucking happened to get it right. And these jungle gods they're worshipping, those are the real ones. How the fuck do you know? You don't know. Nobody knows. Well, actually... What we do know is the religions aren't true because the claims that religions make are actually usually empirically testable and they don't happen to be true. Um, but in terms of like what happens when you die, nobody fucking knows this stuff. Our best guess is just lights out. That's it. Ain't nothing after that because there's no evidence that there's anything after that. So uh, it's just, it's so, it's so arrogant to just assume like, huh, well, what do you mean? Bro, what do you mean? Obviously fucking Jesus is God. And obviously, I don't need health care because I believe in the proper God. It's almost too stupid to even muster up a reaction to. How does that make any sense? How does that make any sense at all? Like, you know, I have family members who were devout Christians who passed away because <laughs> that happens. He would say they're in heaven. Again, how do we fucking know that? Do we fucking know that? What are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus Christ. And then I love how uh, he managed to contradict himself among all the stupidity as well. He's making fun of Kamala because she says, elect me and everything is free. By the way, she never said that. And she doesn't believe that. She's a corporate Democrat. This guy doesn't know the difference between a corporate Democrat and an actual lefty. But 
um, he says, he's making fun of the idea. Elect me and everything is free. He thinks that's stupid. And then he goes on to say, I have health care and it's free. And it's from God. Jesus Christ. And, you know, do I even need to bring up, like, uh, excuse me, Mr. Phil Robertson, uh, I would have you know that there is a Commonwealth Fund study that looked into the different healthcare systems around the world, and the U.S. ranks 11 out of 11. So we are the worst in the developed world, and that's not, oh, shit, I almost fell twice today off my chair. And that's not me speaking, that's the, that's the Commonwealth Fund study speaking. Uh, Mr. Robertson, can you please correct your comments? It would never happen, because he's an ideologue. He doesn't care about the World Health Organization study, he doesn't care about the Commonwealth Fund study. He doesn't care about the data. He doesn't care about the evidence. He just says, ah, free. It's going to cost $30 trillion. Actually, no, it's going to cost $32 trillion over 10 years, but our current system will cost $34 trillion, at least according to a right-wing uh, Mercatus uh, study, and that means we would net save $2 trillion. But according to a different study, one that's more objective, we would actually save about $5 trillion over 10, year, or 10 years. So uh, care to correct yourself? Of course he's not going to correct himself. He's a fundamentalist Christian. He's up his own ass. And it's kind of scary to see somebody who's that deeply biased and in their own bubble. Let's go to Cory Booker. All right, get ready to be angry because that's what's going to happen. Cory Booker is going to fail miserably and uh, refuse to defend Medicare for All on the merits. This is an important clip for so many reasons. Check it out. Let me ask you a specific question about an issue. Do you support Medicare for all? You say we need to have a common purpose. How many Republican votes in the Senate are you going to get for a Medicare for all? Most people would say the number you're going to get is zero, and unless you get rid of the filibuster, it's not going to pass, even if you have said, well, well this is where I disagree. I've gone across this country, sat with you know, Republican farmers, with uh, independents. Everybody agrees that the United States of America, we should have never have somebody who does not get access to care because they can't afford it. This idea that health care is a right is popular on both sides of the aisle. But there's many Senate... Par- uh, Why not just strengthen Obamacare? Why do you have to go all the way to Medicare for all? But again, this is what I'm saying. First of all, a lot of people use that term, and, and there's differentiation about what they, what they actually believe. I know there's pathways that are supported by the majority of Americans that would massively expand access to health care and lower the cost. And that's what we need to be focused on. Where is that common ground? A chicken in every pot is very popular as well. How much would Medicare for all cost? So, so more, a couple things. First of all, just quickly, yeah, just so that people know how much it would cost. But, but, but again, right now we know, even the CBO says, if you lower Medicare uh, to allow 50-year-olds uh, to get into it, you can actually save the not only save the government money, but you can lower uh, premiums for all Americans. And this is the thing: we're not talking directly to issues that can expand access to care and create affordability. And to say that it can't be done. I'm just wondering if Democrats are having an honest conversation while they are promising what sounds good, and and it it should be a universal right that people have access to health care. But if it's 20 and 30 billion dollars over 10 years. No one's having that discussion about how that will be paid for. And, and Nora, I'm having that discussion, and I've shown in my record a short time in the Senate, 
people told me when I got to the center, you could not take on mass incarceration. Oh, it sounds really good to end mass incarceration. Working across the aisle, we got a bill done in the last Congress under this president that actually started the first attack on mass incarceration. What my career has shown, from people giving up on Newark, New Jersey, to getting major things done in Washington, is that when you bring people together, when you fight to find that common ground, you can get things done that make a real difference. Okay, so... Um Everything about this clip is infuriating, and I'm about to break it down for you. So first of all, this is a problem. The problem is now you have corporate Democrats who are saying, okay, I get it, Medicare for all. I can't be against Medicare for all or I'm going to lose this 2020 race. So they're all coming out in favor of Medicare for all, Kirsten Gillibrand, um, you know, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. Now, the problem is that they're saying yes to the policy. They don't understand it, so they can't defend it. So they actually, by extension, make the policy look silly because when they get grilled on it by corporate media hacks, they melt. So this is a real problem. Now notice, he, when uh, pressed, he immediately retreated to, oh, there's different ways to get there, and everybody agrees you have to expand access and affordability. So in other words, you retreated immediately to the Democratic weasel words, the weasel word being expand access. Why does, what, what does that mean? It just means everybody should have the ability to go to a doctor. I didn't say you wouldn't go bankrupt. It's still gonna, you're still going to have to pay out of pocket, but I'm going to increase accessibility. And then, oh, increase affordability. So lower the cost, but that doesn't mean make it free at the point of service, which is what Medicare for All is. So in other words, he can't defend the policy because he doesn't know anything about the policy. So when he's pressed on it, he just collapses. So it, it, by the way, this is going to be a good indicator as to who really believes it and who doesn't. The people who really believe it are going to be able to defend it. Now, Kamala Harris, same problem as Cory Booker. She said uh, in her CNN town hall, oh, yeah, we should get rid of private uh, insurance companies. Then the next day she came out and said, oh, did I say that? I didn't mean that. So the real answer whenever they press you on get rid of private insurance companies, what you say is anybody can get supplemental private health insurance, but the default is going to be a single payer, that being the government, so it comes out of your taxes and you're covered full stop like every other developed nation. So... That's the answer. She didn't know how to answer it because she doesn't really believe in it. Cory Booker doesn't know how to answer it because he doesn't really believe in it. So they collapse, and by extension, they make Medicare for all look ridiculous. Now, the other thing to point out here is look at the media because the media – remember, what are you, if you're in the media, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be adversarial to power. You're supposed to give people facts, data, information, but be adversarial to power. What, what are they doing? The opposite. What they're doing is they're defending the status quo and being adversarial to the people who are going after the powerful. Now, Cory Booker is obviously not doing that, but they're using him as the avatar of somebody who is because in theory he says he's for Medicare for all. So notice all of the very pointed, direct questions are not from the perspective of, man, our system's so fucked up right now. It's from the perspective of, we can't do this. We can't do Medicare for all. So the first question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through how Cory Booker should have responded to all these questions. Listen, those questions were so easy. If you put me in that room, that clip would have went viral. It had fucking 15 million views, and everybody would be laughing at the hosts. That's how easy those questions were. The first question was, well, how many Republican votes are you actually going to get for Medicare for all? And they're using that as evidence of, like, it's obviously a silly idea because you're never going to get any Republican votes for it. Hey, asshole, how many Republican votes did Obamacare get? None. But we still got Obamacare implemented. 
So what you do is, yes, you get rid of the filibuster. Yes, you make it 51 votes in order to pass. And then you hold your Democratic caucus for a policy that 71% of the American people are in favor of. So your smug-ass question is stupid. We didn't get any Republican votes for Obamacare. Does that mean Obamacare was a bad idea? No, it was much better than what we had before. And guess what? Medicare for all is much better than Obamacare. So how do we get it? We're going to get it with zero Republican votes, and we're going to hold every Democratic vote, and we're going to get rid of the filibuster. That's how we're going to get it. That's the answer. It's that simple. Then the question, Then um, another host asked, well, why not strengthen Obamacare instead of doing Medicare for all? Very simple. Obamacare keeps the private for-profit health insurance companies in place. As long as you have that unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit middleman, you're going to have people who are going bankrupt for getting health care. And the root of the system is not going to be good for regular people because there's an incentive problem. The incentive of a private for-profit health insurance company is, I need to make more profit. How do they make more profit? Denying more care and using that money to pad their bottom line. So why can't you just expand Obamacare? Well, very simply put, because you're never going to get to universal coverage and you're never going to get to adequate coverage for everybody under the current structure of the system, which is what Obamacare is. It keeps the for-profit private health health insurance companies in place. That's why you can't do that. Um, Then they malign the idea like, oh, yeah, sure, it's a popular idea. But you know what else is popular? A chicken in every pot. So in other words, uh, this is fucking pie in the sky, lunatic, fairy dust, lefty nonsense. The response to that is, actually, no, you're the one that's backing a system that's pie in the sky nonsense, because the reality is every other developed country has a system like this, has a Medicare for all style system, has one version or another of a single payer system. So we end up paying basically double what other developed countries pay, and we still have 29 million people uninsured. You're the one that's defending the stupid system. I'm the one who's pushing for common sense. This isn't like a chicken in every pot. This is like healthcare for everybody, which every other developed country has and we don't. So you're rationalizing a broken, disgusting, corrupt, immoral system. That's what you're doing. And then finally, how much would it cost? Very simple. It would cost $32 trillion. To not do it costs minimum $34 trillion. So we have a net savings of $2 trillion over 10 years. So the question you should be asking is, how can we afford not to do it? And by the way, that was a right-wing Mercatus uh, Institute study. There's a better study from the University of uh, Massachusetts Amherst, which found that Medicare for All will save about $5 trillion over 10 years. So that's more like the real situation because it's not a biased right-wing study. So again, How can we afford it? No. How can we afford not to do it? Medicare for all saves $5 trillion over 10 years, and it covers everybody, and it gives us better health outcomes. How can we afford our current broken system? That's the real question. But they're never going to ask that. Why? Because they're rich, they're famous, they're comfortable. So they don't understand the pain of being a regular person and dealing with a health insurance company, going bankrupt over medical bills, getting rejected for something that you need coverage for. They don't understand that pain. So they frame everything from the perspective of the establishment as opposed to the perspective of regular people. And shame on Cory Booker for not knowing the responses because he doesn't really believe in Medicare for all. He immediately caved from it. So by the way, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, not interested, eliminated, not interested. Because they don't actually believe in these things. They're not going to fight for these things. So you need to be able to answer. This was easy. I mean, these questions were easy. This is fucking thank you for throwing a softball down the center of the plate. That's what that was. So if you can't respond to these, you're hopeless.
you're hopeless and you don't really believe in it and it's obvious. So fuck the hosts for defending power viciously and fuck Cory Booker for not knowing how to answer these easy questions. All right, next. So Fox News reported on Justice Democrats. Um, this is pretty funny. Take a look. The progressive wing of the Democratic Party is now warning of a civil war within the party. Our correspondent, Trace Gallagher, is on the case of the so-called Justice Democrats, how they helped take down one of the most powerful Democrats in Congress, and who they're after next. Trace? Good evening, Ed. The big theme here is the far-left Justice Democrats are in the process of remodeling the Democratic Party. Justice Democrats are made up mostly of young people who just a few years ago didn't have any interest in politics until they became galvanized by the message of Bernie Sanders. The fact that Sanders lost didn't stop the momentum. In fact, many argue it simply shifted it toward new blood, including helping freshman Congress member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez get elected. And with Ocasio-Cortez representing the future, Justice Democrats are making it clear that centrist Democrats are holding the party hostage and becoming obstacles in the fight for things like free college and Medicare for all. So the goal is to counterpunch with willing liberals like New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. Watch. Quite sick of Democrats who are afraid to be Democrats, who are afraid to be bold and progressive. Step one on the bold and progressive agenda is to gather support for the upcoming Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal resolution that her office calls a, quote, national, social, industrial, and economic mobilization at a scale not seen since World War II. That might include things like universal health care and net zero greenhouse gas emissions, but even though the Green New Deal lacks clarity, it is reportedly picking up support and could be introduced within days. But just Justice Democrats might be surprised to learn the future is running smack dab into the path. Yeah, so they go on there and they talk about how, and it's funny because they actually get this part right, that you have people like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden who are really more moderate, centrist, corporatist, and uh, they're representing that wing of the party. And listen, we have changed the narrative because they're realizing it used to be Joe Biden and um, Nancy Pelosi who were Fox News would call them oh, far left Joe Biden far left Nancy Pelosi and now they're going oh <laughs> that's not the so-called far left the Justice Democrats are the so-called far left but honestly if you uh, broaden the conversation even more Justice Democrats isn't far left we represent social democracy and social democracy is internationally moderate which is why you see on a lot of the individual issues that we're pushing even a majority of Republicans are with us. Actual Republican voters, not the elites in D.C., the voters. So it's interesting because they get that part right. But you're going to notice something. All of you are going to notice this if you're paying attention. If you ever see any articles on um, Justice Democrats in any mainstream outlet, you're going to notice that even when they discuss the founding of Justice Democrats, certain people are omitted from it. So Cenk uh, Uger from TYT is maybe included in 20% of the articles. Uh, Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk is included in 
0% of the article. I haven't seen a single article that mentions uh, the, even the founding and the creation of Justice Democrat. I haven't seen a, sing, a single article that says, oh, yeah, by the way, including Kyle Klinsky of uh, Secular Talk. None of them say it. Now, I, don't, I honestly don't know how to feel about that. On the one hand, it makes me happy because I, I kind of pride myself on being an outsider because I don't want to be part of anybody's shitty club, and I want to keep telling it like it is. And I understand that in many ways this show is kind of edgy. And if you're going to be edgy, you're not going to be included in anything that's becoming mainstream. Because by definition, you're edgy. You're on the fringe. You're on the outside. Um, so on the one hand, I'm happy about that because it kind of reaffirms the edginess and the outsiderness of the show. But then on the other hand, it's a little annoying because it does just whitewash the history of Justice Democrats. And it does take probably the most important thing I've ever done in my life and make it so that I'm erased from my own history. <laughs> so I don't know how to feel about it. I have conflicting feelings on it. Um, but it also goes to show you something very, very important, which is this is where trends start. I don't mean to toot my own horn and suck my own dick here. And perhaps using language like that is why I'm not included in these articles. <laughs> but we are consistently one to two years ahead of the mainstream. So everything I'm telling you about, that eventually becomes like among actual people. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. And by the way, they still fucked up some stuff there. Um, Bill de Blasio, they mentioned, like as if he represents the left wing of the party. No, he doesn't. The guy was a giant uh, Hillary backer. The guy is a little bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, you know who knows that? One of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, me. You know who doesn't know that? Idiot Fox News hosts who are reporting on something they don't fully understand. So watching everybody just now, years after, realize like what Justice Democrats is and what this populist left wave, this movement is, it's a little strange. It's a little strange. Nothing was more frustrating than on the night that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez toppled Joe Crowley. Nothing was more frustrating. Seeing the entire political uh, media class smugly tweet that they had no clue who the fuck she was and that I think everybody in media is now doing a crash course on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Fucking wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. There were independent papers that covered her. Secular Talk had her on and covered her campaign and helped launch her campaign. The Young Turks did the same thing. Jimmy Dore did the same thing. So we, uh, we really, really are outsiders. We really, a lot of, like Joy Reid had no idea we even exist, probably still doesn't even know we exist. And we're consistently ahead on left issues because that's what we do here. So it's, I'm a giant ball of mixed emotions. I want that recognition and that head nod because it's something I'm incredibly proud of, co-founding Justice Democrats. But on the other hand, I never want to be part of their club. And I also don't want them to use stuff I've said to try to drag down the likes of Ocasio-Cortez or Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib because... Let's face it, all you got to do is play one of those Kyle Out of Context videos, and that, I mean, that alone they'll smear them with, you know? Uh, so, again, I guess it's the price you pay for being an outsider, but the upside of being an outsider also is we keep growing in popularity. <laughs> so people like the edginess, the you're on the outside, you're not on the inside, you're not part of the club, you hate the club. And that has an appeal that leads to growth, whereas anybody, once they become part of the mainstream, it just becomes banal, boring. But yeah, there is a giant sea change happening in the Democratic Party. And what they accurately stated is, 
it is a civil war. It is. Why do you think I was pressing the Justice Democrats who were elected to oppose Nancy Pelosi being Speaker? Why do you think I was pressing, um, you know, on PAYGO? Because it is a civil war, and I want all the Justice Democrats who are there to acknowledge that and recognize that and realize that, that you're not there to play patty cakes with uh, Nancy Pelosi, and you're not there to play patty cakes with Democratic leadership. You're there to take over the party and do a hostile takeover for the people, because we represent where the people fall on the actual issues when you look at the polling. And to be fair, most of the time they've, they've done the right thing. Um, there are some times where they've let us down, but I think that's going to happen with any politician. So that is what it is. But interesting, Fox News is now recognizing Justice Democrats. I wonder if they realize that they had one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats on air a few times, and he ran circles around their punk asses. They probably don't realize that. Probably don't realize that. Okay, let me take a quick break. When we come back, I got a few more stories here. We got Saudi Arabia. We got um, Nancy Pelosi gaslighting the left again. And then we have an interesting story about Hawaii effectively banning cigarettes. You're not going to want to miss that. Stay right there.
right, bitches, we back. All right, let me talk to you a little bit about just how fucked up our foreign policy is. New report out on one of our top allies, and uh, it doesn't look good. Saudi Arabia, uh, Arabia gave military weapons shipped from U.S. to Al-Qaeda. Now, for those of you who are longtime viewers of this show, you might file this under the no shit category because we've covered similar stories before. Like three years, when we were just getting involved in um, Yemen, when Saudi Arabia was just getting involved in Yemen, there were already stories about this out, whether it was, I'm not sure if it was Bloomberg or Reuters, but somebody covered it and it, and it was basically like, oh, hey, by the way, we're arming Al-Qaeda. And I covered it. I was amazed that nobody else covered it. Now I'm no longer even amazed that other outlets don't really cover it. It's very rare. It never, ever makes it to mainstream news. Ever. Ever. Just doesn't. Just doesn't make it to mainstream news. Um, so that says something, doesn't it? That something so extreme, so crazy, that no regular American would accept. Story breaks, and you're not going to find coverage on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. You're just not going to find it. Not on the nightly news. not going to find it. So let me give you uh, the specifics here. Saudi Arabia and its coalition gave al-Qaeda, Salafi militias, and other factions in Yemen weapons that were produced by the United States, CNN reported Monday. Okay, CNN reported it. <laughs> they were the ones who broke the story, but they're not... They're not talking about it endlessly on air as they should. This is, you want to talk about like melting down coverage on air? They're not doing it. But credit to them for breaking the story. The weapons have also reportedly been captured by Iranian-backed rebel, rebel groups fighting the coalition in Yemen, meaning they may be reverse engineered for intelligence. A Department of Defense official confirmed to CNN that the U.S. is investigating the issue as transferring military equipment to a third party would violate U.S.-Saudi coalition arms agreements. Local commanders and analysts told CNN during its investigation that the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates use weapons given to them by the U.S. as currency to buy off factions and militias in the Yemen conflict. In the aftermath of the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul, the U.S.'s role in in the Saudi-led war in Yemen has been under increased scrutiny. In other words... Credit to Ro Khanna and to Bernie Sanders, who really led the charge on that front and said, listen, we have to stop supporting this genocide that that, uh, Saudi Arabia is carrying out in Yemen. But the angle of the story that's getting more coverage is, oh, our weapons may have fallen into Iranian-backed militias' hands. So, listen, here's the slightly conspiratorial part of this that you're not allowed to say but I'm going to say it. When we give weapons and money to Saudi Arabia, we know where some of it is going to end up. And I say that because it's been like that since the fucking 1980s. So when Ronald Reagan armed and funded the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to fight the Soviet Union, he knew who they were. He knew that these are fundamentalist Muslims. And later on, they broke up and became Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So we armed our 
worst enemies. In fact, we armed Osama bin Laden. There were articles in The Independent, a British paper, describing him as a freedom fighter. The Taliban literally, uh, representatives of the Taliban from the Mujahideen went to the White House and met with Reagan. So we know what ends up happening when we arm these characters. And fast forward to today, we still do it. We've done it in regards to Syria, because in Syria, 60% of the rebels fighting Assad are jihadists. Um, and we've also done it in Yemen. We, when we arm and fund Saudi Arabia, we know that they're going to utilize um, Sunni militias on the ground, and the Sunni militias on the ground overwhelmingly are jihadists. And, you know, they're fighting the Houthi militias, which are the allegedly Iranian-backed militias because they're Shia militias. And now our weapons got into their hands as well. So in other words, we appear to be arming both sides of multiple conflicts. And this is the military-industrial complex loves this because they make a lot of money when they keep selling these weapons. And everybody else hates it. So honestly, this all goes back to the way to fix this, this all goes back to a Jill Stein policy, which everybody laughed her out of the room when she said it, but she was totally right. We have to stop arming human rights violators. If we immediately cut off all arms deals with human rights violators, that includes Saudi Arabia, that includes various rebel groups, that includes Egypt, that includes Israel. If we cut off arms going to human rights violators, you would immediately see a, immediately see a drastic decrease in... Um, the amount of terrorism happening around the world because they no longer have the arms to do it. And that even if somebody steps in and fills that vacuum, they're not going to fill the entire vacuum because we fund, we give so many arms to so many bad actors around the world that nobody can fill that vacuum if we step out of that vacuum. So you're just going to have a decrease in terrorism if we stop arming human rights violators. Now, that's such a simple approach to fixing this. And again, Jill Stein was left out of the room for saying it, but it's totally true. If we just didn't arm Saudi Arabia, how many more people would be alive today? Even if, again, even if they go to other powers and, you know, make up the difference and get some weapons from other powers, there's no way they'd, give, they'd get as big of a weapons deal from other powers as they've gotten from us. So this is a devastating story, and it's already out of the news, and it ain't going to get back in the news. And instead, all of the anger that you see in mainstream outlets is going to be directed at the likes of Tulsi Gabbard for not saying enough bad words about Assad. But the anger for, our, for the establishment for selling weapons to al-Qaeda, mum's the word. <laughs> there won't be international pressure to stop the U.S. from selling weapons to Saudi Arabia anymore, even though we see the results of this, and it's going to come back to bite us in the ass like it does every single time. Um, it turns out human rights are not the concern. The military-industrial complex churns on. All right, now we go after Nancy Pelosi. So this next story is a giant surprise to nobody with a brain. Nancy Pelosi is gaslighting the left on Medicare for All. And uh, now it's official. We knew it was going to happen. At least those of us who follow this closely, we knew. Um, but this is 
this is now, uh, the details are emerging. So the intercept reports here, less than a month after Democrats, many of them running on Medicare for all, won, won back control of the House of Representatives in November, the top health policy aide to then prospective House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with Blue Cross Blue Shield executives and assured them that party leadership had strong reservations about single-payer health care and was more focused on lowering drug prices, according to sources familiar with the meeting. Pelosi advisor Wendell Primus, who sounds like an evil character, detailed five objections to Medicare for All and said that Democrats would be allies to the insurance industry in the fight against single-payer health care. Primus pitched the insurers on supporting Democrats on efforts to shrink drug prices, specifically by backing a number of measures that, pharmaceutical, that the pharmaceutical lobby is opposing. Primus is a slide... Is a, in a, slide representa- in a slide presentation, excuse me, obtained by The Intercept, criticize single-payer on the basis of cost. Monies are needed for other priorities. Opposition, stakeholders are against, creates winners and losers. And implementation challenges. We have recreated the slides for source collection purposes, for source protection purposes. I can't read today. Um, <clears throat> Nancy Pelosi's not your friend. Nancy Pelosi's not your friend. Nancy Pelosi's not your friend. It really pains me when I see, I want to call them naive people on the Democratic side who truly believe that she's with us. It pains me when I see that. Because then when you try to say, hey, man, that's not true, you get called sexist and everything under the sun. And we say it because of substance. I mean, for example, in the speech yesterday, in uh, the other day, Trump's... Uh, State of the Union address, she cheered for doing an illegal coup in Venezuela, and she didn't cheer for making peace with North Korea. That does say a lot about Nancy Pelosi. It just does. She brags about being the biggest fundraiser in the Democratic Party in a populist anti-corruption era when people are well aware that she's raising that money from questionable sources, to say the least, from big money interests which then makes the Democratic Party beholden to those interests. So she is fundamentally, at heart, a corporate centrist. And she knows that this is a hand that feeds the corporate Democrats, the hand of the for-profit health insurance companies. She knows that Obamacare, even though it was a step in the right direction, it kept the for-profit health insurance companies in place. It was a deal with the devil. And now she's going to protect that deal with the devil, as she gaslights the left and acts like, oh, what? Oh, Medicare for all? Totally. I'll, I'll consider it. We'll now vote on it and stuff. This is why all of us on the left took a stand when it became clear that Nancy Pelosi was going to be the leader of the Democrats and said, don't do it. Somebody on the left needs to step up because if they don't step up, she's going to undercut every single one of our policy priorities. Every single one. And by the way, in turn, undercuts a democratic wave because people aren't going to come out and vote for a party that's going to cave on every issue that we care about. People are going to, if you fight, the Democrats would win in giant landslides if they fight for these issues that Americans care about. But if you don't fight and you undermine your own base, you're not going to get a wave election. You're not going to get people turning out for you in massive numbers. And you're hurting your own 2020 chances against a monster like Donald Trump. So this is fucking heartbreaking. And listen, we're not playing around anymore. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. And what I have a message for Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal, Ro Khanna, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, we could even put in this category. Listen, 
Democratic leadership is not your fucking friend. They want to try to co-opt your popularity, ride the wave of your popularity, while not delivering on the policies that made you popular in the first place. So you need to learn to play politics, not go along to get along, assuming that they will always be on your side and they'll always back you. They're actively looking to undermine you. A lot of these guys, these uh, justice Democrats and lefties who I just listed, it would, it's unconscionable to them that a Democratic politician should sit across the table from an insurer and give them updates on what's happening. But that's what these guys do. That's what Chuck Schumer does. That's what Nancy Pelosi does. That's what the Democratic leadership does. So it's your job to take this left-wing revolution, this wave, and bring it into the end zone. And at no point will you be able to relax and stop fighting. You have to fight every step of the way, including in your own party, and you should embrace that. Buy into the false logic of fucking unity, because when they scream unity, what they mean is unity to do corporate-centrist ideas. That's what they mean. They never scream unity around Medicare for All, which has a 70% popularity rating. They never scream unity around living wage, which is 80% popularity rating. They never scream unity around ending the wars, which is overwhelmingly popular. They never scream unity around legalizing marijuana. They try to gaslight you every step of the way, and you need to know that. All right, final story of the day here. So Hawaii is about to do something absolutely unprecedented. BBC News says this, Hawaii could raise the legal smoking age to 100, effectively banning cigarettes for the vast majority of people in the state. In a new bill proposed by Democrat Richard Cregan, the smoking age would increase rapidly between 2020 and 2024. It will need to pass through the state legislature and weather a potentially strong backlash from tobacco companies in order to become state law. E-cigarettes, chewing tobacco, and cigars are not included in the bill. Dr. Cregan, who was an emergency room physician before he was elected a state representative in 2014, calls the cigarette the deadliest artifact in human history in the bill. In January 2017, Hawaii became the first U.S. state to raise its smoking age to 21. In other U.S. states, the legal age is usually 18 or 19. Okay, so there's a lot to say about this. Let me break it down for everybody. Save your judgment until I'm done explaining my position, um, because I think this is a, a complex issue. I'm against this. Here's why I'm against it. It's too authoritarian. Now, is this Kyle making the argument that cigarettes are not dangerous? Listen, dude, my dad died from cigarettes at the age of 56. He smoked at least two packs a day for his entire adult life, got lung cancer, metastasized his spine, and he died. Okay, so I don't have any love for cigarettes. I smoked for about five years, and then I switched to blue e-cigarettes, and then I was able to quit from the blue e-cigarettes. So I also have a soft spot for blue e-cigarettes or e-cigarettes in general because they got me off of actual cigarettes and they're not as bad for you. Um, So, but do I understand the danger that is cigarettes? You bet your ass I do. Those anecdotal stories of like, well, my grandma smoked until she was 97 and she uh, she was fine and then she died at a very old age. Honestly, that's the exception. I think the, uh, the data shows the majority of people who smoke, it's an ugly ending whether it's emphysema or lung cancer or whatever, they are, cigarettes are insanely dangerous. Insanely.
insanely dangerous. So I get it. I get it. I get it. But if you actually believe in freedom, you can't do such a heavy-handed authoritarian move like totally banning them. Now, what would I be in favor of? I'm in favor of regulation. Listen, this is my take on everything when it comes to drugs, when it comes to guns. Legal tax regulate. So, if you're a lawmaker and you come to me, or you're an aide and I'm the lawmaker, and you come to me and you say, hey, we have this new plan. The plan massively limits the number of carcinogens that can be put in cigarettes. Uh, it's only a few number of ingredients that can be in there. And these cigarettes are scientifically proven to be significantly healthier than your run-of-the-mill cigarettes, which are packed with chemicals and carcinogens and all these things. And you say, hey, let's regulate cigarettes and take the worst carcinogenic additives out of them and only allow these specific kind of cigarettes, which are still bad for you, but nowhere near as bad as the original cigarette, would you support this bill? I'd say yes, I do, because I think that's basic marketplace regulation. You're allowed to have the government step in and say, okay, we're going to allow this, but we're going to tweak it. You know, you can't have fucking arsenic in this product or whatever. So I think the same thing applies to cigarettes. If you want to regulate out the worst additives and you want to make cigarettes less unhealthy, then go right ahead. Now, there's no way you're going to be able to ban everything that's unhealthy, you know? Like, that's a... We live in the world. The world is not full of just fucking roses and rainbows and puppy dogs, and there are things that are unhealthy, and you shouldn't even ban things that are unhealthy because if you believe in freedom, you believe in giving people the freedom to make the wrong choice sometimes when it comes to social issues. And I agree with that. You're not going to fucking, you want to regulate into existence that everybody lives in a fucking giant padded room, and if you run into the wall, you don't get hurt. No, that's authoritarianism. That's nanny statism, and that goes too far. So this is why I've always described myself, and when I take those political tests, I always come out this way. I'm a libertarian leftist. I lean more in the libertarian direction than in an authoritarian direction. And there's a big difference between an authoritarian leftist and a libertarian leftist. A libertarian leftist looks at a story like this where they are literally basically banning cigarettes, and they go, no, you, you're going too far. And that's not to say cigarettes aren't evil and dangerous and terrible for you. They are. They're all those things. But I much prefer... Uh, I much prefer the idea of legal, keep them legal, tax them, and also regulate them. So make them less dangerous, take out some of the worst additives, but you have to give people the freedom to make a decision, even a wrong decision, because that's what life is, man. That's what life is. I mean, what's next? Uh, McDonald's is objectively bad for you. Should we ban McDonald's? McDonald's is fucking delicious. It's delicious. I want to have the, uh, the option to go to McDonald's maybe once every other week or something because I fucking love it. It tastes great. I wouldn't be okay with, with just, oh, let's cite the numbers. McDonald's uh, leads to X amount of fucking heart attacks and blah, 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 so we have to ban it. You're going too far, and that is the definition of authoritarianism. You know, we go on and on. Gambling. There's a lot of people who are addicted to gambling. Should we ban gambling because some people are addicted? Well, I got news for you. A lot of people who gamble are not addicted, and they do it recreationally, and they're totally fine. So I don't, when you buy into the logic of ban it, it's bad, then the ultimate ending to that is just flat-out authoritarianism, and the government decides for you what's okay and what's not okay. My perspective is lean in a freedom direction, lean in the libertarian direction on social issues, but allow for reasonable regulation. 
So you want to take out the worst additives? Yes, take out the worst additives, regulate the product, tax the product, but you have to allow it because if you don't allow it, you're just controlling people's lives too much. And also, by the way, that breeds hatred and contempt against the government. Now, would their plan save lives? Don't, don't kid yourself. Banning cigarettes would absolutely save lives. But what's the ultimate end goal here? Is the ultimate end goal just to save lives? Because if the ultimate end goal is just to save lives, we should ban cars. Now, when I say ban cars, all of you go, why would that? That's crazy. Right, it's crazy. Even though it would save a tremendous number of lives, it is kind of crazy. So the ultimate goal is not just save lives. There's other things we're balancing here, like freedom, convenience, um, choice. So it's a balancing act, and you've got to be as reasonable and objective as possible, and you have to you know, balance competing values. And this is a tough one, but my position is you have to keep cigarettes legal, but you should regulate them to make them less unhealthy, if that makes sense. All right, I'm out of time, guys. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody enjoy your weekend. I'm Alfie's. Peace.